afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Security Squawk Podcast. My name is Brian Horning. I'm here with my co-host, Reginald Andre from Arc Solvers IT down in Miami, Florida. And we got Randy Bryan from Tech Rescue in somewhere in South Texas. What's somewhere in Texas. Somewhere in Texas. I'm good with that. <laughs> I can't remember what town you're from. I always forget. Well, it's uh, by Austin. It's uh, San Marcos. San Marcos. That's We're what Austin was 20 years ago. Really? Still cool and hip. You're, you never le- it never left? It just <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So San Marcos had all the babies that moved to Austin. Yeah, pretty point? much. Gotcha. Pretty much. All right, everybody. Welcome to the show. We got a killer uh, lineup topic lineup for you today. This is the podcast where we hope to educate you about cybersecurity, right? Whatever could impact your life around cybersecurity. <clears throat> And really the focus is educating you on what you need to do to make sure that your business isn't impacted from a technology standpoint. Uh, We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, We're going to talk about three things today. We're going to go into some bad practices identified by our government cybersecurity agency, CISA. Uh, They've identified some things that businesses are doing regularly that they probably shouldn't be doing. We're going to cover those. We're going to jump into disaster preparedness and a discussion around um, what it takes to actually live through a disaster type event. Now, it doesn't matter if it's ransomware, some other kind of malware, a hurricane, a flood, a fire, a bomb. Um, These are all real threats that can happen to your business today. And cybersecurity deals with all these things. And we're going to jump into that and talk about that stuff And then we have the Labor Day holiday weekend, and it's no secret that hackers like to do things during holiday weekends. They um, have calculated that the uh, risk uh, is lower to be getting caught and to move around and do things. Uh, So typically we see holiday weekends as a favorite time for cyber criminals to strike and deploy ransomware. So we'll see if that happens this weekend. But our friends over at CISA and the federal government have put out some guidelines on what you should do in preparing for this weekend. And we're going to go over that and decide as a group whether we think it's good information or not. So before we jump into that, remember, we do this show out of the goodness of our heart. We don't get paid for it. So if you like something here, if you are educated, if we've changed your perspective, if we made you think, share our show. Uh, It's the only fee that we do charge. We ask that you share our show, share it with your friends, family. It's simple. Grab the link, go paste it into your social media, hit post. That's really all you need to do. Let people know that this podcast exists and that you get value from it and they should should listen to it and get value from it as well. So jumping into it, we're going to go right into it, boys. Uh, CISA bad practices. Why I share that out. Uh, Randy, since you were the one who brought this uh, up for discussion, start talking to us about this. So supposedly, or apparently, <laughs> they've started a bad practices page, um, which you can go to and look and see, okay, what are the bad practices? Just like they put out a publication not too long ago that had like the top 10 or 12 things that you can do that are good practices. Um, I think they're kind of taking a different approach because maybe people will ignore the good practices because they don't make sense or whatever. And let's just go straight to some bad practices. And if you look at these, they, they, they actually probably it brings in probably 90% of the security risks that are out there, if not higher. 
Yeah. So it starts off with use of unsupported software in service of critical infrastructure and national critical functions is dangerous and significantly elevates risk to national security, national economic security, and national public health and safety. This dangerous practice is especially egregious in technologies accessible from the internet. So, Andre, what are end-of-life unsupported software, and why should I not be using that in my business? Yeah, so the end-of-life just essentially means that the manufacturer, the programmer, they have no, they're no longer supporting this application or uh, this hardware. And what that means to you is that they're no longer pushing updates. So when if they find a bug or if, if something has been addressed as a risk, they would typically send an update, you would patch it and everything would be okay. So once it becomes end of life and they um, these manufacturers will always give you a, a, enough notice so that you have time to then upgrade your systems, um, they just essentially stop supporting it. And now that's when the hackers and the bad guys are actually now going in and finding what bugs, what vulnerabilities is in the software, because we know if we find it, the manufacturer will not patch it. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Randy. Well, we talked a few episodes ago about, you know, critical infrastructure, and that includes, you know, IT, medical, and several other things. And I know I mentioned it, or at least I was going to, I was literally at the hospital less than three months ago watching watching some stats in a patient's room on a freaking XP, Windows XP computer. Windows XP came out in 2000. Um, it was end of life in 2014, which was like seven years ago. Um, and that's a sitting duck. That target is literally a sitting duck. And there's no wonder why, you know, I think we read our last podcast like 80% of hospitals have had some kind of ransomware like in the last six months. Um, anyway, that's what, that's what this is talking about. It's just stuff that's old and expired and, you know, we got to get rid of it because it's a security risk. We've got to either update it or just get rid of it. I agree with that. Good job. I have nothing else to add. So we're going to go on to the next one, which is the use of known fixed default passwords and credential in Service of critical, blah, blah, blah. It's all the same stuff. Um, and this dangerous practice is especially egregious and technology is accessible from the internet. So what what does this mean? Um, you know, it's, it sounds pretty straightforward, but Randy, what, what is going on here? Why are they recommending uh, to not use known, fixed, or default passwords? Yeah, so the I would say first off, you can get a dark web scan you know, like with your credit card company or with with like one of us or your security company, find out if your passwords have been leaked. And that's what they're talking about. Passwords that are known, you know, like password money sign is not a good uh, password. You can find out if they're known. The average the average attack on credentials costs three hundred and eighty four ish thousand dollars to come back from. Wow. And that's when they, they can log into maybe to your bank. They can log into your, you know, your healthcare provider um, if you're like a doctor's office. Um, but bottom line, this is low hanging fruit for uh, both for the criminals because they can use they can use bots just to try to log in everywhere. It's also low, low hanging fruit for a business. 
you know, don't use passwords that have been leaked already. I mean, that's that's pretty easy to change your password. So, yeah, and the, the, you bring up a great point about the the leaked passwords, but this is like, like let's, like, Rain or uh, Andre, what kind of devices might be on my network? Maybe I maybe I paid somebody to set them up, or that's a professional, or maybe I didn't, or maybe. Maybe I hired a professional and the professional just didn't think to go this far with it. It was five years ago and this wasn't really a thing that was concerned about. What, what types of devices are do we commonly find on companies' networks where the default password was just never changed? And it might not seem like a big deal, but it, it could be. Yeah, for me, the two biggest things is the copier machines. Yep. If, you, if you have a Kyocera, I, I know your password is admin and eight zeros. <laughs> Yeah. And and then the second one, not that we do too much with cameras, but cameras as well. A lot of times it'll just be admin and admin or something like that. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, you can Google that shit. Yep. Like you can literally Google every password for every device that's basically been ever manufactured. So if you know the, the make, the model, and then you just type in default password, you're going to get that password. So, yeah. And, and even if it's a, like a firewall that ha if you have if it has a interface that's open to the internet, they can log into the firewall. They could install some sort of man in the middle, which is basically where they're able to get everything. They can watch everything that goes through. I mean, that, that, that would be disastrous. Right. Um, and yeah, that's point because gosh, I know some routers speaking basically on the consumer side for the most part, but, it's not to say that a business owner didn't go to Best Buy and buy one of these consumer grade routers, right? And he thinks he has a firewall. He thinks he has protection in place. But sometimes by default, number one, they use a weak username and password and they use the same password across every device that they, they put out. And the other thing is, is you're, if you don't go in and check to make sure that that remote administration is not turned on by default, you could potentially be hooking up a router that you have no idea has is accessible from the internet. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, people don't realize the dangers of, of just going to the store, buying a piece of equipment and putting it on their network. And, and they don't have a level of understanding of how these things work to the point where they would know whether they open themselves up to some kind of vulnerability or something like that. So it's a good point. So um, Andre, anything else you want to add to this or do we, are we good? I want to, no, we're good. And, and I, I need one more thing. Uh, sorry, Randy. Uh, I, I remember, I don't know where I heard it, but I just read it the other day where they said, if a printer doesn't die, the printer will stay there. Like printers are usually one of the things that just never get replaced. And so definitely take a look at your printers and, and, and change the default password. Yeah, I mean, look, if you bought a printer five years ago and nobody's really ever kind of looked after it other than, you know, throw a new toner and paper into it. There's a good chance that that firmware needs to be updated on that mm -hmm. device. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you want to go figure out how to go, Mr. Business Person, if you want to go figure out how to update your firmware, I'm sure you can go to YouTube and figure out how to do it. And if that's the way you want to handle it, I would do it. But get a professional in there um, who can maybe look over that stuff for you and, and make sure that those things don't become something that a, an attacker can use to then, you know, move somewhere else on your network. You're obviously, they're not going to deploy ransomware through a printer, but they're going to be able to do things 
and hide themselves and maintain access through that printer. Right. And that's we, what we're trying to stop. We actually dealt with an infected uh, office at one point that had a very large Xerox Mm-hmm. And the Xerox was actually, we called it the queen bee. It was, it was actually the foothold that the company, that the bad guys had in this office. Yep. Um, it was uh, pretty insane. So yeah, all this is very important. So the use of single factor authentication for remote or administrative access to systems supporting the operation of critical infrastructure. And I don't even want to read that part because they're saying like, operation of critical infrastructure like let's just get rid of that all your infrastructure like why are we saying oh you got to make sure your critical infrastructure it's like well no we should be doing all infrastructure not just the critical infrastructure because i'm not confident that networks are set up enough with enough segregation to to say that the critical isn't on the same network as the non-critical like most businesses that i've evaluated it's all together. It's all mixed together. So single factor authentication, Andre, we talk about multi-factor authentication all the time. Let's just expand on why the use of single factor authentication is a bad idea. Yeah. And even going back to what you're saying with critical functions, I mean, if you're using maybe a marketing software, such as like a click funnel, a constant contact, that has your entire email database and can send stuff on your behalf, things like that you're even wanting to do the the two-point factor. And what that basically means is even if the bad guy has your password, because he doesn't have some type of token system where the digits change all the time, they're not going to be able to get to the next step into getting to your, your critical infrastructure or your application or whatever it is. Randy? I mean, wasn't some of this involved in the Kaseya where certain certain devices didn't have second level authentication turned on for remote access? I'm not sure exactly, but bottom line, it, yeah, you, you want to put up. Remember when we talked about um, zero trust, you know, one of the basic foundations of zero trust. I mean, you all know this, but one of the basic foundations of zero trust is to assume that they're already in the network, assume that they're already around. And so you don't want to make it where somebody can just remote in and do whatever they want. So they got access to the remote, that sucks, but then have a second level authentication there, which is yet another roadblock. This It ought to be like that all through your, all through your system and all through your networks. Yeah, I mean, at this point, especially on critical infrastructure, there should be two-factor authentication pretty much everywhere. Um, and it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And this is pretty basic stuff that they're giving you, uh, in this bad practices. Now, I think, I think, uh, Randy, you told us that they're going to expand on these things. So hopefully, but supposedly, I I guess, I guess the way I would put this, like if, if you don't do these three basic things, you're probably going to have some kind of an issue in the very near future. Cause like, this is, this is basic, basic, basic stuff. Right. And if any of this stuff is, is exposed or can be accessed via the internet, you're, you're in a lot of trouble. Like you're, 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 you're going to get hacked. Like it's just a matter of time. Um, so cool. So the next thing I want to jump into guys is, is this, uh, 
you know, we were talking in the green room about a lot of the things that people think that we do when we talk about cybersecurity is just dealing with criminal hackers. And that's just one part of, of cybersecurity. Um, for me, cybersecurity or cyber resilience is the ability for a business to continue to operate knowing that they use technology as their business or in their business. And it's, it's, it's as important to their business as the road is to getting to the office, right? They aren't going to be able to conduct business and do business if they don't have the, have the right technology in place. Um, so I look at cybersecurity more in the terms of cyber resilience and that no matter what happens to these businesses, be it fire, flood, um, you know, any of those things, natural disasters, man-made disasters like acts of war, bombs, nuclear bombs, um, anything that can like destroy your physical presence, destroy your servers, destroy your employees' computers is all part of this whole disaster repair, uh, preparedness and, and cybersecurity. So obviously we had um, Hurricane Ida rip through our country over the last two or three days. Um, it, it really is uh, quite an amazing sight to watch a storm like that rip through the country. Um, the storm is absolutely enormous in terms of its size, you know, a few hundred miles wide. The area that it, it, that it just tears through in the initial stages of the storm is, is incredible. But we're, we're, we're friends with, with IT companies all over the country, right? And we have friends that are dealing with these issues from Louisiana all the way up through the middle of the country, then towards the East Coast. And, you know, today we have a lot of companies up in the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland area that are helping clients get through something that they probably didn't think that they were going to be dealing with when they left work yesterday. Because this storm literally hit my area around seven, eight o'clock. Um, and, you know, the tornadoes, we've, we had the largest tornadoes we've ever seen in the Philadelphia area from this storm. Um, and, you know, I got, you know, I, I was on the call with you guys earlier today, right? And I got an, a nice email from a client, completely unexpected. Um, but they, you know, they thanked us for coming to them years ago and starting the process of building a disaster recovery plan. Now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to share my screen here and kind of show everybody um, the Facebook post that I post up. And this is their office building. Um, luckily that they are on one of the upper floors there um, in that building. Uh, what you see there where the lights are on, that's the, a parking garage. Um, obviously there's a storage trailer there that's floating in the parking lot. Um, but you can see that the bottom half of that building doesn't have much power. Um, the internet's gone, you know, nobody can show up for work. Um, and these are the things that we've built with our clients and what we do for disaster planning. We walk them through these types of scenarios. What happens if, what if you were on the first floor of this building? The first floor of this building is completely underwater. You see that first building on the left there? That's a that's one that's the second story you see. The first story is completely underwater. So any laptops, switches, firewalls, any technology, the wires in the wall, they're done. Right? This all now has to be replaced. 
right? But how does this business, how do these businesses on that first floor, how do they continue to operate, you know, over the course of the next month when they can't access this stuff, they lost their laptops. What's the plan, right? You don't want to be figuring this stuff out today. You want to figure this stuff out way ahead of time, right? So we know, you know, what we're going to do, where we're going to go. Um, so let's kind of briefly go into some of the important things when it comes to a disaster recovery plan. And what I'm going to kind of tell people is as we go through this, this applies to cyber attacks as much as it applies to natural disasters and all that stuff. So keep that in mind. So no matter what happens, it's going to be the same response, whether it's a cyber attack or whether it's something like this, a fire, a flood, a hurricane, or, or what have you. So number one thing that we talked about right out of the gate was, you know, what are you going to do, right? This is, your, this is your situation when you wake up in the morning. Your office is underwater. Maybe you had, maybe you were working from home already, or maybe because of COVID, or maybe you were in the office and you just lost... I don't know, 50% of your company's laptops that your, your employees use to, to do their business. What do you do? Where do you go? Randy, what are some options that people might have? Um, well, uh, I guess kind of backing up just a hair off of that yep. is they need to decide in advance what's your <laughs> critical data, what are your critical functions, and then they need to decide how much does it cost or, or determine what does it cost like per hour or per day to be down. And then they need to determine how long could they handle actually being down. And then you can go back to that question, you know, what will you do? So if I could handle being down a few days and, you know, or a couple of weeks, then, you know, maybe what I do is I go buy a brand new laptop and we spin up and we're in the cloud or whatever. It all depends on the, on the specific business. There's going to be some businesses you know, that that maybe they're maybe they're pulling in a million dollars per hour and they can't afford to be down for two, three, four hours. And so they they've set it up to where they can literally get back to work as soon as they can get to like to like a separate location. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty big question. I guess we have to ask some more like supporting questions to exactly figure that out. Right. But in terms of basic and Andre, you can chime in on this too, but in terms of like basic options, right? Like there's, in my mind, there's three basic options, right? You're either working from home, like everybody kind of did with COVID, or you do have options to set up what's known as like warm sites or hot sites, right? And, and co-evocation facilities or however you do it, or maybe you have multiple offices around the country and if one site goes, if, if your Philly office goes down, maybe everybody's working out of New York or, or DC, depending on where you're at, right? These are all options that you need to go through with your, with your team, mainly your management team and your, and your IT team to really put these decisions down in your plan, have it on paper. So everybody knows what to do, right? Because what, what typically happens in, stressful situations when there's not a plan is things usually default to one or two individuals to make decisions. And you got a real problem if those individuals aren't around. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what this does. So Andre, do you agree with what I said there about 
about the warm hot sites or working from home. Do you have a, a any any other perspective you want to add to that being that you're kind of in the hotbed for this kind of weather and this kind of stuff? What do you what do you what's your perspective? Yeah, so definitely I lo I love the the warm spot, but it looks like in this case and I don't know how how far this goes, but even if uh this se this seems it's going to be at least a couple of miles, right? This is like the whole town, this picture that you're showing. Um so this particular area is very low in relation to where this river is. Um, so this particular area is prone to flooding. It's outside of Philadelphia. Um, so I don't know how far this goes. I haven't seen like, like the full report. Um, I was actually surprised to even get this from the, our client. Uh, so it, th this has the potential, Andre, to go miles. And this isn't the only river that kind of wow. in our area where this is a, a potential situation. Um, there's, there's probably like four or five large rivers that feed into the Delaware river where it's a similar situation. Got it. Um, so yeah. this, this is pretty widespread in the Philly area. And this, as far as I've seen, this also is extending up into New York and Connecticut. So you just think about the number of businesses, people and, and managed service providers that are in those areas. Yeah, definitely. And because even here in Miami, we're, we're not a, a it's not a wide state. So that's why I'm always telling our clients when um, when I mentioned today I had that meeting is because I was having that exact same conversation with a client where I'm like, we got to embrace the cloud. We we have to take these. Um, they have a nothing special in their office. They're, they're just hosting their files um, and, and their QuickBooks, their financial software. And that's basically it. So um Having be, been in the have if they were in the cloud and their phone systems were in the cloud, their um, all their files, their um, if any special applications for um, for CRM or, or everything like that, their employees could just continue working, assuming that they have interneted power at their home. So I think that's going to be one of the the big things to point out on that is that one particular option is just having your data in the cloud and working from anywhere. Yep. And then, so moving beyond, like one of the first things, obviously you have to determine, as Randy said, where you're going to be down at. How, how long can you live with being without certain pieces of your infrastructure, or your data, then figuring out, okay, when we do come back up and we can't go back to where we are used to or where we're supposed to, here's what we're going to do. What comes next? Okay. We know where we're going to go. What, what what should a business owner then be aware of that, that should come next as part of this process? Are we talking Randy? recovery? Randy? Yeah, I'm not sure of the question. <laughs> so, so, all right. So we're going Rephrase through- Rephrase it as a softball question. Yeah, so <laughs> we're, we're going through our disaster recovery, right? And we're, we're now at the point where we- know we're going to either be working from home, we're going to be at a hot site or, you know, something like that. What is the next step that a business owner needs to be concerned with, right? Is it like, okay, I picked my site. Now my IT company has to do everything or my IT guy needs to do everything. What else, what, what would come next in, in your opinion for a business owner? What, what would be the next logical thing is what I'm asking. That's that's still kind of a rough question because I guess I don't know 
of the exact situation, but it seems to me like you would want if you've already got a site pick, then you've got to go fire up that site. Um, if if you're having to have an, an all, you know, an, a, a second site, you know, Andre's scenario a few minutes ago, if if you just have if people are on workstations and they're in the cloud in the office, I mean, they can just take those home, you know, or or whatever. Um, I guess the next step's just going to be, you know, what is the new normal going to look like for the next couple of weeks and, you know, or months or whatever it is and start to implement that. But I'm still a little unclear, though, on the question. Yeah, Andre, I think I heard Andre said it, but it had to do with recovery, right? So we're going to go in recovery mode, right? Right, right. But we're not going to recover everything all at once, right? We're not right. going to recover. Not everything is going to be treated at the same priority, right? So part of the disaster recovery plan and what you're doing and identifying your assets in the beginning is you're also taking that information and then building a plan for, okay, what comes up in what order, right? Because you're, and, and some things may not come up during this process, right? Some things may not be needed for, but once a month or once every two weeks. And if you're only going to be down for two weeks, you, some things might not need to be brought back up, right? But that's good to know, right? Because you don't want somebody spending time or money and resources and putting effort into bringing something up that doesn't necessarily need to be brought up. But without a plan, my fear is, is that somebody will go in and just start spinning everything up. And then that just makes things more difficult, more efficient and all other problems could come up that I've seen along the way. Um, so I didn't know if you guys wanted to share your perspective on like, what is a good best practice for determining or bringing things back up to where your employees can start using them? Right. So you, we've already kind of said you got to identify and pick the physical location. You know, everybody's there either at home or in some place that you brought them to. Like I, I have, I literally had some clients whose whose disaster recovery plan says everybody's going to come to my house and work from my basement. That is literally in one of my clients' disaster recovery plans. So, um, Andre, you said recovery. Do you guys agree with that assessment? And what are some tips that you can have for maybe, you know, identifying what should come up faster? Or if you are going to be in that recovery phase, what are some, some things that you guys could share your experiences on? So what I do with our clients is, um, I, I, you know, I tell them the truth. Look, we're a 10-person company we have roughly about 40 clients. And during this time, we're gonna have 40 clients that are saying, I'm priority, to, you know, and how do you now divide, you know, roughly eight, seven or eight technicians between all of these clients. So what we do with our clients is we do, we ask them, given, the, the, given the, that we don't have all the time in the world to now recover your, your to spin things up, what is the number one thing who's the number one person or the number, you know, X amount of people that we should be concentrated on because uh, we may be limited on internet bandwidth, power, whatever the case is. So that's kind of what we do for our clients because there's no, realistically, um, we just will not be, you know, we'll be, we're already going to be over capacity um, with all of these calls, everybody saying, I need to do something. And then the person who really needs to do something is on the bottom of the line because we didn't have, you know, some type of process. We we had a disaster in Texas in February, which we call snowpocalypse. Um, every single county in Texas had a freeze warning, which we've never had that before. 
literally shut the whole state down. And for us, since everybody was shut down and all of our clients are in Texas, there was, there was no rush, you know, like, like what you're saying, an occasional person needed to get something out. Um, and people just called in, but you know, we didn't have a deluge of calls because literally the entire state was shut down, which I don't know that that'll ever happen um, again. But what I would say to that is those kind of things I think ought to be determined in advance, you know, before you get into the middle of a disaster, determine in advance. Okay. Like I was saying earlier, what's the critical data? What, what are the, what are the critical functions? And then basically use that to start back. You start back with what you already had determined were, you know, the critical data and the critical functions and build back from there. That, that'd be my opinion on that. Yeah. I, I agree with both of what you said. One of the things that I think is important to point out though, um, and, and this is, this is, I, I got to watch what I say here. <laughs> um, I think it's important for us to point out that, and I don't know if I'm, I'm right or wrong on this, but I get the sense that sometimes MSPs, and I'm going to specifically talk about our business and whether you outsource your IT to an MSP. So if, if you don't outsource your IT to an MSP or another IT company, um, you know, uh, you might fall in this boat, but, you know, there, you, you might not be using certain technologies either that, that we have access to. And specifically, I'm talking about something like a, a backup device or company called Datto. Um, and I've been in enough situations where I've heard people say to me, well, we have data. We're good. We have backup. You know, we have, we have data as our backup. We're good for disaster recovery. And they, and quite frankly, I've walked into companies where they've told me, oh, our, our MSP has us on data. That's our disaster recovery plan. Well, data is a backup device. It's not a disaster recovery plan. And if you think that because you have data, you have a disaster recovery plan. I'm here to tell you today that you're sorely mistaken and you're going to be very pissed off if you ever have to go to that data for disaster recovery. Because while the data device will operate perfectly fine and will restore, that is not a disaster recovery plan. And you're going to go through a lot of stress and you're going to be wondering what the hell your IT guy or company was doing because it's just going to be such a mess. And, and what I mean by that specifically is, you know, if you have a decent amount of servers that are being backed up by data, you expect things to run a certain way. And I think the conversation that is lacking between MSPs and their clients is that you can't run your environment from a data device or from the data cloud like you can your own actual environment. You're running in a backup type emergency space. There's not as much bandwidth. It can't handle as much, you know, like there's not enough processing power. The processing power you get in a data cloud environment versus what you probably have in your normal environment is probably going to be about 20%. So, you know, if you have a hundred users using a server or a particular application and you have to go to a disaster recovery environment, 
it realistically can probably only handle about 15 or 20 people, maybe even less before it chokes out and slows down. And I want people just to have that perspective because I hear people say all the time, oh, we have data, we're good, or our, our, our person has us on data, you know, we, you know, we have this endpoint protection and they put two or three products in and they think they have a disaster recovery plan. Now, a disaster recovery plan is actually a document that you can reference that outlines basically step by step how you're going to handle this situation. It is not a piece of technology. It is not a piece of backup. So I don't know if you guys feel the same, A, about my perspective on what MSPs are telling their clients today. And if you agree with me on that, that conversation needs to be better and needs to change. And then do you agree with me on what you're seeing in the recovery environments that they're, they can't handle as many users or as much processing as what you know, you normally are used to. And I think that's the problem. A lot of business owners think like, oh, I'm just going to go get spun up in the data cloud and everything's going to be normal. And then you're sorely mistaken because it's not going to be able to handle as much. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm not too familiar with, with data. Mm -hmm. I know there are other cloud-based products. I demoed one of them, mm -hmm. literally took 20 to 40 minutes to spin up the server in the cloud. Now, a server will take a little bit longer in that situation because it's got to search for drivers and devices and all that, maybe right. seven minutes longer or whatever. 20 to 40 minutes to spin up. There's no way 10 users are going to connect to that thing. But I so will question, say that server in the normal environment takes how long to spin up? three minutes, exactly. five minutes. There you go. And, but there are options out there that are scalable and you can build your backup, backup and recovery device. You can build it or spec it out to handle that specific environment that you're in. It costs more money. So you need to be willing, a business needs to be willing to pay for that. It goes back to that whole thing I said about you know, what's your data and how long can you be without it? What does it cost to be without it? And then it's worth to pay four or 500 bucks a month for a device that can handle your whole office. And then you, you really ought to have a time where, you know, you test it all, you know, Hey, let's say, you know, Friday at five o'clock, we're going to, we're going to unplug the real server and we're going to fire up the you know, the disaster recovery backup device that's on site and let everybody try and see see how great or horrible of an experience you have. If it's horrible, you're back into that ball court. Uh, you're back in the court that you're talking about. You know, you got to do you have to have something different. Yeah. So first off, I want to be clear to everybody. This wasn't a slight against data. This any any product that backs up and recovers the way that I mentioned falls in this category. It doesn't, it's not a slight on data or their technology. Their technology is very good. In full disclosure, we are a very happy partner of Datos. Um, but we are an MSP who has that conversation with our clients. We sit them down and, and give them the real deal. Like if this happens to go down and we have to go through this process, you're only going to be able to have about X amount of users connect, yeah. right? So they're aware and they know. And then when there is an event, 
they're not hearing this for the first time, right? This isn't a surprise to them. That's what we're trying to eliminate here. And we're trying to empower our industry to make sure that they're having these kinds of conversations with their clients. So, um, Andre, anything you want to add to the backup, the disaster recovery? Let me ask you a question, Brian. This this flood, was this yesterday? Because I think you said something. It was something like, um, it's not something you thought you would be dealing with yesterday. Uh, in this particular case, did they know that this was going to happen? We knew that the storm was coming our way. Uh-huh. We didn't know the track. We didn't know the specific isolated areas that would get the most rain or, or have the most impact. But I would venture to say that this parking lot and that parking garage was full of cars yesterday. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, the storms rolled in probably around six, seven o'clock and the worst of it was overnight. And this pr- picture was probably taken six o'clock this morning. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, I was just wondering on that because I know a couple of weeks ago we actually talked about when it was storming here and it was like a, a tropical storm and we're talking about, you know, wrapping up the computers and bags and everybody taking stuff home. So I was just curious about that. Um, what I will have to say about this is just like cybersecurity, there's different layers and there's different things. It's the same thing for these type of incidents. Um, you don't know what's going to happen. And there, there also needs to be that plan that as soon as uh, maybe that should be part of the plan, that even if a user has a, a desktop, um, maybe that is something that they should just take home with the with the expectation that they may not be able to go back to the office for a week or two, you know, yep. Um, just. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100 percent. And I want to I, I do want to wrap this topic up because I want to go into our last topic, which is the holiday weekend. Um but, you know, along with the fact that we need to make sure that business, that business owners are having this conversation with their IT company, at the end of the day, the, the, if you're wondering, like, who knows this kind of stuff? Like, how, how do I know my IT guy can help me with this kind of stuff? I talk about frameworks all the time. I promote frameworks all the time. I don't care what framework you use. I like the NIST cybersecurity framework. And that's what we're trying to kind of educate people on here today is even though it says NIST cybersecurity framework, that framework and everything that you do to achieve all the controls that are in the framework will help you with this situation. It's not just the, the NIST cybersecurity framework is not just about protecting you from ransomware and hackers. It's making your business resilient enough that it can survive those things and these things. So that's what I wanted to point out. Um, you just have to hire a company that's familiar with the NIST cybersecurity framework that lives by it, that understands it and can help you implement it in your business. That would be my recommendation. So any last shots before I move on? Good to go. So jumping into the weekend. Ah, weekend it's coming up. We can all uh, just relax. Yeah. So um, it was funny. I was at the, at the, at a show this weekend, which I'll, I'll, I'll give him a big shout out. It was quite frankly, one of the best uh, industry sh- uh, events I've been to in a long time. It really, I went to the event because I saw the agenda and two things drew me there. A, number one, it was only an hour away from my house. 
uh, drive wise. So I thought, great, you know, I can get there easy. I don't have to get the hotel room. I can drive home at night. But we were having dinner at the Statue of Liberty and somebody who only lives an hour away from the Statue of Liberty. I never had a chance to go there and have dinner on it. So I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I had a chance to meet Gary Vaynerchuk. But IT by Design, uh, which is a, a company that provides um, resource, help desk type resources. They did a really good job uh, with their show. Uh, so I want to give them a shout out. And I got to hang out with, with Gary Vaynerchuk and uh, and learn from him. And it was it was a good experience all around. So we're heading into the holiday weekend, right? And it's Labor Day. And, you know, one of the things we want to, talk about you are too funny um one of the things we want to talk about is is what happens over labor day right and i was talking at the show i was talking to the guys from fret locker which is also another uh company that i'm a big fan of um threat locker guys basically said to me we had no fourth of july weekend because they were helping their partners get through the kaseya event right so Hopefully nothing happens this weekend. Um, I'll give you my perspective. Uh, my perspective is, is that the ransomware groups that were doing really well that basically caused the JBS and the Colonial Pipeline and also led to the Kaseya hack. Um, these guys are gone right now, right? They've disappeared, all of them, right? But we've had some new groups pop up in the last month or so. Um, I'm concerned about Lockbit. Um, I think Lockbit has made some really big strides lately, and they're kind of the, the horse leading the pack at this point. Um, I don't know if they have anything up their sleeve for this weekend, but let's talk about it, right? So uh, the reason we want to talk about it is because uh, the FBI got on board with me, and like me, I put out a video right before the 4th of July attacks. Uh, the FBI decided that they're going to put out some guidance on um, – what to do for this weekend, getting prepared for this weekend, right? The title is ransomware awareness for holidays and weekends. Um, and they give some tips here. And I guess I just want to get your guys uh, kind of feedback on what you think. Is this good advice? Is this bad advice? Did they miss anything? Is there something here? So at a high level, they're, <laughs> they're recommending, uh, they go into ransomware trends and then they talk about threat hunting. Um, not so easy to do, right guys? Like, we're not talking about like, this isn't something that you can just call up and get threat hunting tomorrow. Right. Um, so, so they start off with threat hunting, cyber hygiene services, right? They, they're, they're talking about their service, right. That they, they offer, um, that we highlighted on the show one time. So do you agree with me on the threat hunting? And we'll just talk about threat hunting real quick and then we'll dive into like these different mitigation points uh, that they brought up. So threat hunting, agree with me, disagree with me. What are your thoughts there? I would say in classic um, FBI, CISA government uh, type, uh, type articles, um, this one starts off. And then it just they go off into the weeds and really get down, uh, really get out there in those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the number one time for an attack to start is Friday at 530. And the number one weekend of the year is July 4th. And probably this coming weekend is going to be number two or number three for our year uh, so far. So hopefully they've started threat hunting before 
today um, because that weekend starts tomorrow. And at first I thought you were talking about the group the weekend that you went and saw the weekend this weekend. You're Nothing. Cute. You're cute. You're cute. <laughs> You're cute. What, what I liked about this, what, like Randy said, the article started interesting because it kind of like gave a, like a bolo out, like, Hey, everybody watch out for this. But then they went into this whole long article as far as like, uh, you know, in three days is Labor Day and they making it seem like this is stuff that you just need to go do in the next three days. But nevertheless, it is great information. And at least at this point, they're starting to even realize it themselves watching, you know, Brian's YouTube videos that this is starting to become a trend. We've got Mother's Day weekend uh, that happened before July the 4th um, and, and one more it mentioned too. Yeah, faster. Memorial Day. So here we go. Recommendation mitigations. Make an offline backup of your data. And I'm not going to comment. Uh, I'll let you guys comment. I want to go kind of, we're, we're going into like 50 minutes here of recording. So I want to kind of blow through this as quick as we can. But if, you know, make an offline backup of your data. We kind of talked about cloud backups extens extensively already. Um, do you consider cloud backups offline backups or should we be doing something more like taking and, taking it home and putting it in a deep, dark you know, closet somewhere. What, 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 if you read this, what does this mean to you guys? I mean, it just means to me that, that you need to have your data in a, you know, in a third location. You've got it on your computers. That's one. You've got it as a backup. That's two. And then it needs to be somewhere else. So whether that's a, to me, I know a cloud is online. It can, so a cloud backup or just having a backup, you know, I don't know about that whole taking it home thing because it seems like no one really ever follows through on that. Um, but there I, guess, are I, guess, I guess for me, if you're in the cloud for a cloud backup, you need to make sure that somebody who knows what they're doing, a professional, knows how to air gap that or segregate that. So if a hacker gets on a computer on your network, they can't find your backup device and then go to it and format it and wipe everything that's on it off, right? That would be my concern is that you pop a data device in and the data device, yes, is there, but if I can access it, I mean, I've gone in, I've gone in and audited uh, companies where the MSP saved the login credential for the data device. And we were able to log right into it because they saved it on the server in the browser and we were able to log into the data device. Once I'm in the data device, I can do whatever I want. I can delete your cloud backups. Right. So this or, or is even, the kind of stuff we're talking about. Or even better, as we talked about, you know, not changing the passwords and, and it's the default. All right. So do not click on suspicious links. This is like elementary stuff for us. But yeah. go ahead, guys. I mean, uh, it's pretty important. I'm glad they pointed it out. Um, you you probably could step up your game on your vigilance this week. Right. This weekend going into this weekend. You know, I, it, it should be that way all the time. But going into this week, you might not want to click on any links. Yeah, I read an article just a few weeks ago that I think it was 30 something percent of all people that are working from home have clicked on suspicious links, even though they knew they shouldn't just because they just wanted to see what would happen. So um, don't do that. Yeah, do that in a test environment on a VM, <laughs> you know, where you're doing your security research. Don't do it because... You want to see if there's really something funky on the other side, right? 
Um, it does suggest that you implement a user training program and phishing exercises to raise awareness among users about the risks involved in visiting malicious websites or opening malicious attachments, which I think is great advice. Just make sure you're doing that, you know, on a weekly basis, not like once a year. Um, Andre, you good? Yeah, this is stuff that we've been saying. Yep. If you use RDP or other potentially risky services. Wow, RDP is a risky service, according to the FBI. Uh, built into Windows. Secure it and monitor it, right? So, yeah, RDP is not really a risky service. But if misconfigured, it can be a risky service, right? Mm -hmm. So, um Anything specific there, R R RDP, in case you don't know, is remote desktop protocol. It's how many of you are probably remotely accessing your computers if you're doing so. Hopefully you're doing that behind a VPN and not just doing that over the internet. So if you're not connecting to like a VPN or something before you're connecting to your computer at the office, you're potentially accessing rdp in a risky manner let's put it yeah down. and rdp uses port 3389 you could literally go to i think it's can you see me.org um and then enter in port 3389 and you can just see if that port's open on your network um you don't want that port to be open on your network you don't want it to be because that would give access to the outside and if you are using rdp it's over a vpn so it doesn't need that port because a VPN is a direct, basically a virtual direct connection. So I guess it's also important to point out because I've literally audited companies and I've talked to MSPs and I'm like, hey, you have RDP open, right? And then, no, yeah, I have RDP open, but I changed the port. And like I've literally had other MSPs tell me that changing the port is a security feature. It is not a security feature, number one. And any hacker over the age of seven knows how to figure out that your RDP is running on a different port, but it's right. still RDP. So, so 3390 is not good enough? That's correct, Randy. And that was that was actually the port number he changed it to. I know. I've seen that. <laughs> 90, 91, 92, 93. Yeah. And I and I I I told the client, this is this is exactly how it went down. I told the client, I said, hey. You can't be accessing your computer this way. This is this is bad. You're gonna you're, you're like I, I can access your computer from my house. This is bad news. You need to change this. We 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 revealed that information in our initial assessment, right? I got a call back. I got I got an email back two days later or a day later from that person who said they talked to their IT person. Their IT person told them. They changed the port, and that's a security feature. And I was like, yeah, no. So I Googled that shit. I found like four articles where it said changing the port does nothing for your security. Sent that to them. I said, you don't have to take my word for it. Here's four different articles that say that back me up and go against what your guy's saying. So, I mean, this is real stuff, guys. There are MSPs out there that are giving bad information to you, right? Because – you know, it makes their job easier when they can just tell you a line of shit and get you to move on, right? So update your OS and software, scan for vulnerabilities. Uh, first one, no problem. Second one, a little more difficult, right, guys? Yeah. So scanning for vulnerabilities, you better know what you're doing. You know, the average bear yogi isn't going to do that. Um, 
but we always talk about updating your software, updating your OS. We talked about it earlier. Um, anything you guys want to add here around like maybe vulnerabilities and or anything? Yeah, one thing I'll add from the last one was about the account lock, lock, lockout. So essentially, if there's too many attempts yes. trying to log in, yes. then definitely do that. And funny enough, I was speaking with um, the partner that we use that uh, monitors this for us because we are a, uh, you know, hackers can come in at any time. So we partner with another company that helps us with the, with 24-7 monitoring. And I asked them, what was the number that after X amount of attempts, it alerts you? And he told me 15 was the number. Mm -hmm. So curious to know if, I know we don't have that much time, but curious to know from you guys what you thought about that number. Too high. Yeah, that's what so I thought. We go, we, 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 depending on the situation, we're either three or five. Now, the other problem is, and what I see a lot, is the default setting in all Windows computers, including servers, is that if an account gets locked out after 30 minutes, it automatically unlocks it. And that's where I see the problem. Because if nobody's looking at those logs, nobody's monitoring those logs, and your only thing is, is well, we have account lockout turned on. Right, but then did you go to the policy that turns the account lockout back off and change that so it doesn't automatically unlock the account after a certain period of time? Hackers know this shit. If you actually look at logs and telemetry, you will literally see hackers hack all the way up until the point that they log out. And then after 40, 30 minutes, it doesn't, and you'll see it's not exactly 30 minutes. It might be 30 minutes. It might be 47 minutes. It might be 63 minutes. It might be 88 minutes. Who knows? But they're back at it, knocking at the door again, trying to brute force their way in. Um, so it's very, very important that you use the passwords and, and, and make sure that you have that lockout on, right? But you also look at other settings. And this is where professionals come in, right? Professionals know to look for this stuff. Professionals know to go, okay, make sure the, the account lockouts only go off if an actual person goes in and unlocks the account. Um, and I've seen it a million times where they said to me, oh, we have account lockout on. Okay, yeah, but is the account being unlocked automatically by Windows? And sure enough, it is. And then that's how they were able to successfully do the brute force attack because they were able to keep trying and trying and nothing was stopping them. And nobody picked up on the fact that these accounts were being locked out and then automatically unlocked. So have you guys seen that? Disagree? Agree? I think Randy's texting. Yeah, I've seen it. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, a lot of times it's, it is that high number because of the amount of noise that can uh, that can happen. You know, you have a user, they, they swear they know the password and it's like their fifth time doing it and then they just give up. And then so it, it goes back to convenience, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, you know, we... You know, in our business, we don't dictate to our clients that it has to be three or five. If they want it to be 15, then we'll make it 15. But we have to watch things a little differently, right? But ultimately, our recommendation is going to be, you know, I don't know. You type in the password once, you type it in again, you type it in the third time. I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody to, you know, have their account locked out at that point, you know, to just to say what's going on. So. Um, use strong passwords, use multi-factor authentication. We kind of already covered that earlier when we talked about not, not using single factor. Um, so they recommended not to use single factor. Obviously it's recommended to use multi-factor. 
Secure your networks. Implement segmentation. Filter traffic. Scan ports. Um, here we go. This isn't easy stuff, right, guys? And you know, we talked. I talked about segmentation earlier when we talked about air gapping the backups. Um, but filter traffic. Scan ports. What, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I'll, I'll make one comment of the scanning the network for opening, open and listing ports, close that are un unnecessary. I mean, I would say just go to a whitelist only policy on ports and you can you can narrow it down to probably two dozen or four dozen. You know, they can narrow it down um, from the th tens of thousands that are out there. Um, narrow it down specifically and just have everything whitelist only. And so we tell we tell a new customer when we turn on this whitelist only that there's going to be a few things that don't work. So we'll go into the firewall, we'll open up what we need, and there's a lot that won't work right away. And we might be finding stuff for a um, we might be finding stuff for a um, like weeks or months, you know. But bottom bottom line is you're you're only allowing what has to be and everything else is blocked yep andre it all goes back to planning and this cannot be done something uh three days um i agree right yeah. this is and that's where i'm going with this and that's where my head's at with this it's like <clears throat> yeah like this is too much like go uh, if you're not doing this stuff already you're not doing this stuff they, when did they release this? It was like Tuesday. The 31st? Yeah, the 31st. So it was three days. Yeah. You're not going to get this stuff in place in this short period of time. So this yeah. is like for the next holiday, right? Exactly. Christmas. You know, they, you, yeah, for Thanksgiving, you might be able to have a, a, enough of this stuff in place realistically. Yeah. Um, uh, secure your user accounts. This is more about monitoring. Not easily done, right? You know, obviously you... You, you need to audit and make sure that you don't have stale accounts out there that can be used and things like that. Um, but yeah, somebody's got to be looking at this stuff. Somebody's got to, to, to measure it. I, I love the time that I went in and, and, and audited a company once. And uh, when we pulled back the active accounts in their server, uh, three of the people at that company, I personally knew, and I knew they didn't work at that company anymore. Yeah. So, and I went to them and I said, Hey, this guy still has an active account and he works over at this company. And this guy still has an active account and he works over at that company. And I'm like telling them where these people now work. Cause I know these people and they didn't believe me. They're like, no, those accounts aren't active. I'm like, okay. So we went, so I showed them the report that we had. And then I went into their server and I was like, these accounts are absolutely 100% still enabled. So it's important that somebody looks after this stuff for a business and then <clears throat> have an incident response plan. Oh my God. Look, disaster recovery plan, incident response plan, kind of synonymous with each other. Um, and that's what we just spent a whole lot of time on. And the last thing that they put in there is have an incident response plan. And I think these last three or four things are really things that you need to implement over time. So if you're not doing these things right now, you're probably a little bit vulnerable heading into the weekend. You probably want to, you know, maybe when you get back from vacation, hopefully you don't have an issue with, you know, a cyber attack and you, you want to start working on these things. So when Thanksgiving comes around, they're going to put out the same directive and they're going to, you know, put out the same thing. Make sure you have ransomware awareness for the holidays. Right. So, yeah, I think it's good that, I mean, 
they did get off in the weeds here, and there's no way you can implement all this by this weekend. But I do think it's good that they're that they're talking about it. They're getting it out there. You know, we're starting to hear a consistent message over and over and over and over. And it's basically these things that we just read. You know, that's that's good. We got to write. We got We've got to raise the water level um, in our country when it comes to cybersecurity. Hundred percent, and because. You know, I'm, I, I take the perspective of I've been talking about this with businesses for a very long time and I get meet, met with a lot of resistance because a lot of other IT companies aren't talking like this and they aren't offering the, this level of service that, that we offer here at our company. So it's hard for them to understand why do I need everything that you're selling me, Brian, at Exact IT. When this guy over here is telling me he can take care of my cybersecurity for half the cost, um, but he's not doing all these things. He's not doing everything that the government is listing here. He's putting like one or two tools on your system and calling that cybersecurity. Um, we actually help companies put this stuff together and implement it and refine it and make it better going going forward, right? And that's what it takes. And I'm glad that some other entity besides me as a business owner who is sometimes just seen as somebody peddling a bunch of services when I'm really just trying to help companies do the best they can with this stuff. I'm happy that the government's actually stepping up and echoing what we're preaching here on this podcast and what we do in our businesses every day. So uh, hopefully it makes our life easier, our job easier and business owners who, who need our services start to wake up to this is everything that needs to to go into protecting my business so I don't go out of business. Yeah, and I want to steal your your quote, um, Brian. When in our mastermind group, we talked okay. about prices and things like that. So I'll just I put it here. Yep. We are going to be go. We are going to be three times the price of those guys. I'm going to take you through why, and you can decide if it's worth it to you. So when you you know we're none of us here are trying to pitch our services we're providing it information but for the viewer that's listening in when you are comparing your prices and you see that you know one company with the low ball price and another company that may be two or three times higher the this is the difference the, the these details are the difference so just wanted to point that out yeah and those details are a big deal and like you said Brian if they're if they're quoting a substantially lower price, they're leaving things on that list. They're leaving them off. They're leaving them off and they're not telling you. They're not right. educating you and they're not bringing these things to light. And guess what? If you're signing a three-year agreement with that company for 36 months, you're not going to hear a peep about it. Mm -hmm. Right? Because you guys know and we know the economics of our business and the if you're coming in low ball, right? If you're on the low end, you're doing everything in your power not to interact with that client, right? Because every minute you spend with them is a minute that you can't spend selling, marketing, or making money somewhere else, right? So you get underserved. They, you know, other business owner or other MSPs, other IT people will cut corners. They'll they won't do the things. The number one thing I ask people all the time is. And I'll, and I'll throw it out there for our audience, you know, for business owners to think about is when's the last time your IT company or your IT guy sat you down and had this conversation around, 
you know, disaster recovery or what we're going to do to beef up defenses over the holiday weekend. Like if these conversations aren't happening proactively with your company that you're buying services from today, you can pretty much bet that they're not even doing them. Right. So don't be surprised when you get hit with ransomware. Right. Don't call the guy and be like, I thought you were taking care of this for me. You know, you were you were wrong, Mr. Business Owner, for assuming that they were doing that. Now, if they told you they were doing it and they're not doing it, that's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. But if they're not having the conversation with you, you need to assume that they're not doing it. Where I see in the marketplace, the 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 modus operandi is business owners default to I they got me covered. Right. And that's never the case. So that's it for me, guys. You got anything else you want to add? No, that's all. Um, if, if anything major, I say we, we should, uh, if anything major happens over the weekend, we should uh, do a live, you know. That, yeah, um, I'm down with that. Actually, yeah. Actually, our, our call may be Tuesday. I believe we're going to be starting in the morning soon. Yep. So. But oh, yeah. 1030 next Tuesday. Tune in. We can always go live on Facebook. Or 930 Facebook. and somewhere in Texas. Yeah. I, I predict, I'm going to make a prediction. We're not going to see anything this weekend. Not feeling it. I predict we will, just because one of us will be right. Well, you can, but I predict <laughs> we're not going to see anything major. Obviously, the normal stuff will happen to some of the small businesses, you know, that we never hear about in the news. Um, but I think the, the national news correspondents will, will have a, a, a decent weekend to relax and not have to report on some major ransomware attack. Um, we'll probably know by 24 hours from now because they'll probably unleash it tomorrow afternoon if it's going to happen. Um, but I don't think anything's going to happen. I'm not seeing a lot of chatter on the dark web. Um, but the dark web's a really different place right now. Um, it's hard to find things. It's hard to figure out where guys are, are planning stuff. They've seemed to have shifted and moved around, but um, I think we're in note one is still in those retooling phases right now. Um, so October could be interesting being that it's cybersecurity awareness month. Oh yeah. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll do something that whole entire month, but so that's it for us. Uh, thanks everybody. Remember share the show. That's the fee. If you were, Educated, entertained, enlightened, what have you. If you didn't like us, don't share us, don't download us. But if you did, share us, download us. Pretty simple. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Bye.